Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with James Titko. And we're marking the end of Veganuary this week with a look at the global food supply, from measures to make farming more sustainable through to re-engineering cereal crops to turn them into perennials, and we'll hear whether bacteria are likely to be feeding us all in future. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. So, the big question. How do we reorganise the global food system to meet both the challenges of climate change and world hunger? How do we fix farming? Now, the point of posing this question is not to demonise farmers, who understand and appreciate the environment better than anybody. Rather, they're often the motivated ones who want to make a difference to preserve their livelihoods. The government recognise this and are now introducing measures to reward good land stewardship practices – The Environmental Land Management Scheme, ELMS, recognises 280 different actions that can help to safeguard the environment. They're a post-Brexit replacement for the European Union's Common Agricultural Policy, CAP, which mainly reimbursed farmers for the amount of land they farmed, rather than how sustainable their farming practices were. These actions vary from conserving hedgerows to assessing the quality of soil. Now, Martin Lines, who's the chair of the Nature Friendly Farming Network, also happens to be a Cambridgeshire-based farmer. Yeah, so we're standing in quite a large arable field, but in the middle of the field we put some habitat strips to bring nature back into the centre of the field. So that means I no longer need to use insecticides, and we have more pollinators and predatory insects in our farm landscape, which I can rely on to bolster my food production in a joined-up fashion. Uh, within this field there was a cover crop, so that was capturing nutrients and stopping nutri- and soil loss. So that's a new reward. We're having better management of hedgerows, so much of the natural capital the nature items in my landscape are now going to get better reward but we weren't getting rewards for in the past and we're moving away from that area-based payment just because i have a number of hectares we farm so it'll underpin my farming business in a more sustainable way so this is not i've heard the criticism before that this new initiative is paying farmers for doing things that they're already doing some things we were already doing because we've already recognised having nature in the landscape is, is a benefit. But for the majority of farmers, they haven't been doing that. And government wants all farmers to go on this nature-friendly farming journey of putting, working with nature and having more, halting the decline in nature and putting more nature back into the landscape. And we're going to get rewarded for doing that, which will also help our businesses. I'm getting the impression then, not only as a chair of the Nature-Friendly Farming Network here in the UK, that you welcome this these changes this is something you're you're very behind very much so we've been working closely with government and with defra about how do we design these so actually it works for farmers and all farmers can get involved so i we welcome the direction and it actually rewards active farmers 
doing the actions that society wants, uh, which is real positive. We've only spoken about sort of two or three examples of things that farmers can now do and get a bit of money for. So there's a whole range of things. It's planting more hedges, more trees. Um, we're taking out some areas of, of the field and putting herbal lays in to build fertility up and giving areas for, the, for bringing animals back into the landscape to graze to build fertility so I can remove artificial or fossil fuel-based fertilisers. And it's bringing that integrated approach. Not all of the options is available for me as an arable farmer. So there's multiple options for livestock farmers and farmers in different parts of the country. So we take, you know, it's like having a shopping basket and you walk along the aisles picking up the items you want. Then as you get into it, the next year you can add some more ambition and put some more items in the basket. And it's helping farmers look at it as a suite of options and stacking uh, options onto your farm. So I'm growing food, I produce wheat, but I'm also providing habitat. I'm locking nutrients into my soil, adding carbon back into my soil, taking it from the atmosphere. And these are all multiple wins that we can stack benefits across my farm landscape. Of the 280 or so practices, obviously we're not going to have time to discuss all of them. Was there anything you thought particularly that was missing or anything that would encourage this sustainable push that the government really wants farmers to take on but hasn't been included in the scheme? I think taking a whole farm approach, it's all right. We could choose as farmers to do one or two individual actions at one end of the farm but do some not good practice at the other farm end of the farm. And we need to take a whole farm approach. One thing that's been highlighted as a, as a real plus of the new ELM scheme is the fact that it's, it's going to be a bit of a win for smaller farmers because I think it's something like up to 90% of the global grain trade is controlled by about four companies. So is this now sort of a win for the little guy? I think it is. And a lot of the little guys and, and far, smaller farms have more farm edges and the previous scheme rewarded you for the bit just in the middle. The new schemes reward you for those edges. So more small fields, more diversity, actually those small farmers will get more income. Farmers with big, large fields will see their income decline because they're not managing that natural asset around the outside. So I think it really does help support that smaller farm business. In terms of any sort of further improvements, maybe, or certain things you'd like to see, you mentioned the holistic where you'd like farms to be analysed. One of the concerns we have with the way the announcements have gone and the way they value it, it's about income foregone. So some landscapes aren't actually producing a lot of food and have been reliant on the previous payment structure to underpin their business. If we only value it on its food production, some landscapes won't have an economical model to be farmed and actually they need to be valued for the public good they deliver, particularly the uplands and the dales and places like that where public really enjoy the access to the countryside and that also comes to a cost to the business trying to manage that landscape to get the public good. Mm. So government do need to focus around where is the value of the public good in the different parts of the landscape across the UK. Martin Lines there chatting about sustainable farming subsidies for UK-based farmers. He's also chair of the Nature Friendly Farming Network here in the UK. And a friendly farmer too. Now, one striking aspect about how the, the foods we tend to farm most often tend to grow is that these plants are all annuals. In other words, they grow, they bear some fruit, and then they die. And they do that all within the same single season. And what that means in practice is that farmers need to re-prepare the soil and then re-sow new seed to turn into new plants each year, which of course costs them time, it costs fuel and wear and tear on machinery. And that in turn adds to the production costs 
It also makes income harder for farmers to predict. For instance, this year, fertiliser prices and fuel prices have skyrocketed. And so it would be much more in everyone's interest, wouldn't it, if we could plant these crops once and then harvest from them multiple times over successive years. Now, that is the aspiration of an organisation who are called the Land Institute. And they're doing this by breeding high-yielding modern crops that are annuals with their perennial wild ancestral relatives to hopefully produce cereal crops that will keep on producing a harvest year after year. Tessa Peters. At the Land Institute, our goal is that you would have a crop that gets planted and then you would harvest that summer. And then the following year, you wouldn't have to go back and plant. You would simply harvest the grain that was produced the next summer. And for us, we want to see crops that are producing grain for at least three years. Our farming ancestors, though, have spent literally thousands of years choosing, evolving, selecting and breeding plants that are the cream of the crop that we grow at the moment. And they're annuals. They come up, they produce their seed and then they die. So you're saying you want to reverse all that and and come up with plants that that doesn't happen to. How? We have a perennialization program where we're looking at annual crops, sorghum, wheat and rice, and then we cross them with a perennial relative. For example, for perennial wheat, we cross it with intermediate wheatgrass and we try and keep everything that we like about the wheat. We like the big seed size. We like that it's easily harvested, that it doesn't shatter, you know, it doesn't fall off the stem before harvest, those kinds of things. But then we want to bring in all of the perennial characteristics that we really like, the ability to overwinter and produce grain that next year. When one grows perennials in the garden, you generally find that they're good for a few years and then they clap out. And most most gardeners tell you, yep, that's the time to, to chew them up and you replace them. So how long do you think you can extend the life cycle of some of these, say, wheat plants? In other words, how many times do I end up not ploughing a field and therefore saving on the fuel, saving on the tyre wear and everything else that goes into tilling a field so that I get the same sort of yield without all those other costs and the cost of the soil, obviously. Our goal is at least three years. We know that these are kind of herbaceous perennials and they probably will have to be replanted. But for wheat, that's a third as many passes across the field with your tractor. Perennial rice has been in the ground now in in China for eight harvests. It's two harvests a year, so that's four years. And what are the yields looking like? For perennial rice, the yields are equal to annual rice. For some of the other crops that we work on, the the yields are substantially lower. So about a third to a half of the wheat yields. And so the goal for us is, of course, to increase the yield through plant breeding and hopefully at some point rival the yields of wheat. Are there any problems with, with something being in the ground for longer? That's more opportunity for pests to attack it. It's more opportunities for the plant to weaken for other reasons and and, and dent yields further. So how are you building in safeguards against those? One of the things that we're finding is that perennial crops also have defenses that make them more resilient to disease in some cases. And that's how they've evolved. So far, we haven't really run into any really big disease issues. And the main sort of bonuses here, apart from the fact that you're breaking the link between a farmer having to buy seed every year to plant, but that means as well as your fuel 
savings of not having to run a tractor across that land, the soil is also a beneficiary because you're not getting soil erosion because you're not turning it over. You're not exposing the interior of the ground to the air and getting various erosion events and, and loss of, of nutrients and so on. Yeah, that's definitely one of the big advantages. With a living root in the soil, the soil is being held by that living root and also by all of like the microbial and fungal interactions that are happening in the soil, those microorganisms also secrete a lot of chemicals that help hold the soil in place and hold it together. So they also increase infiltration because the roots are are penetrating the soil. And so when, when it rains, a lot more of that water is actually making it into the soil versus just running off and carrying the topsoil with it. Another really important aspect of this is that these perennials tend to have much larger root structures than annual crops. This big root structure increases the amount of carbon that's stored in the soil. It can also scavenge nitrogen that's available in the soil and getting it out of the system and out of the water supply that humans are then using to drink. These crops tend to also be fairly resilient to drought because they have these long root structures that can source water from deeper in the soil profile. Let's hope she's successful. Tessa Peters there, she's from the Land Institute. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with James Titko. And this week, inspired by Veganuary, we're getting to grips with new developments in global food supplies. In a minute, we're going to hear whether bacteria are set to feed us all in future. But before that, crossbreeding, we were just hearing about that from the team at the Land Institute, is one way that you can get your crops to produce better yields, but it's not the only way. And researchers at the University of Cambridge are approaching the issue from a slightly different angle. Giles Oldroyd is the director of the Crop Science Centre, and they are engineering grain plants to take advantage of naturally occurring interactions with microorganisms that are in the soil in much the same way that peas and other legumes do it. Giles, do tell, what have peas therefore got that corn, wheat, barley, etc. doesn't? Yes, so peas and beans have learned to engage with these nitrogen-fixing bacteria that can colonise the roots of the peas, and they're able to convert nitrogen from the atmosphere into a reactive form of nitrogen that plants can use and then incorporate into amino acids, proteins, DNA and RNA, etc., how good are they at doing that, Giles? As in, if you compared a bag of fertiliser and a pea plant, how much better is the fertiliser than the pea or vice versa? Well, the pea plant doesn't need any fertilisation, so that's how good they are. They get all of their nitrogen from the air through this interaction with the bacteria. And if you compare that to a, a wheat or, or maize, you're getting most of the, the nitrogen through fertiliser application. And your goal then is to say, well, we learn how the pea does it, we then borrow from the biology and we endow the wheat with the way the pea does it. That's right. So for the last 20 years, myself and, and many others in the research community have been trying to understand how peas are actually engaging with these nitrogen-fixing bacteria and identifying the genetic components that are present in peas and beans that allow them to recognize the bacteria in the soil and attract those bacteria into those roots and then also create the environment for nitrogen fixation. Would this be a genetic engineering Thing Correct. Then, that you, you take the genetic elements from the pea and insert those into the wheat so that it can produce the right sort of factors and environments so those microorganisms that are there get recruited into the wheat roots. 
That's right. So we now have a really good understanding of how peas are able to engage with these nitrogen-fixing bacteria. We know pretty well at least a lot of the genetic components that are involved in that process. And so now we're in the process of putting those genes from, taking them from peas, putting them into uh, our cereal crops, and trying to get our cereal crops to engage with these nitrogen-fixing bacteria such that we can grow those cereal crops without the need for adding nitrogen. Does it work? we're in the process of doing it. So we just got the money to do that, to do all of that engineering. We've been working for a long time uh, using funds from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to understand that process in legumes. And we're really now pushing into that sort of product concept of how we actually make that system work and get the cereals to actually fix their own nitrogen. I suppose that if you are able to do this and plants effectively become self-fertilizing, A, it means we're dosing soils less, which has got to be good for farmers' pockets. It's got to be good for the environment. But it presumably also means that people who live in areas where the soils are naturally poorer and would have to use more fertilisers, presumably they're going to be extremely pleased with your work because it means that they'll get a better yield out of their crops too. Yeah, so so when we look at nitrogen, it's, there's a really it's like a two uh, a two sided coin here in high income countries like the UK and particularly here in Cambridgeshire, we're applying fertilizers at high concentrations to support our crop productivity. That's essentially the green revolution, and and that green revolution, which was the allowed us to apply these nitrogenous fertilizers, it's tripled our the yields of our uh, cereal products. So we're really heavily reliant on the use of inorganic fertilizers to maintain our crop production. But the use of those fertilizers is very polluting. It's uh, one of the major pollutions from uh, deriving from agriculture, both washing into our aquatic systems and causing biodiversity collapse, but also uh, causing greenhouse gas emissions. So here in the UK, and then for instance here in Cambridgeshire, if we could stop using those nitrogenous fertilizers, have a much more sustainable way of growing our food. On the other side of the coin, if you look at uh, much low-income countries like sub-Saharan Africa, the farmers there don't have the financial resources to buy the, these fertilizers. And because of that, their crop production is really atrocious. I mean, we're talking about 20% of the potential production that they could actually be achieving, in part because of the lack of these uh, inorganic fertilizers. So we can find ways of getting nitrogen into those systems, and particularly sustainable ways of getting nitrogen into those systems. We can massively raise up uh, crop production for smallholder farmers. So really, if we can make this work, it could be truly transformative of our food production systems, driving sustainability in high income countries and driving equity of, uh, of global food production, particularly for smallholder farmers. And just in the last minute, will this work everywhere? Because if the microbes are coming out of the soil and forming those relationships with pea plants, if you try and grow plants in places where peas wouldn't normally grow, will it work? In other words, are these microbes sufficiently universal that if you go and plant your modified plants in sub-Saharan Africa, those bacteria are there and the plants can use them so so we know these nitrogen fixing bacteria are ubiquitous in, in soils across the world but there are specialized bacteria that associate with peas and different bacteria that associate with beans so it might be that you'd have to use inoculants and certainly in soya production in the u.s they're using inoculants but once you've used those inoculants and so got that's the where you physically add the stuff to the to the soil yeah you actually with you, the plant you, you plant so the seed there 
exactly you plant the seed and you bring the bacteria with it but often when you've done that inoculation those bacteria are then present in the soil and they're maintained in the soil so you don't have to inoculate every year the the, the bacteria reside within the soil and you can the next time you plant the the crop uh, the, the bacteria are there the crop can find them and, and form that nitrogen fixing association super we wish you luck giles giles oldroyd from the cambridge crop science center Amazing work. Now, so far, we've been discussing how traditional arable farmers can adapt to help the environment, whether that be through maintaining their farm with sustainable methods or growing crops which are better adapted to produce yields without harmful and expensive fertilisers. But that still leaves the massive problem of the emissions from meat and dairy farming, which many scientists argue must be reduced if we're to achieve our climate targets. Now, Finnish company Solar Foods think they have the solution. Their approach is something much more radical, moving food production from the farm to the factory. They do this by growing protein and fat-rich food using bacteria that are themselves fed on a diet of carbon dioxide and hydrogen produced sustainably from water using solar-generated electricity. I spoke to CEO Passi Weinecker to find out how. The main feedstock are the organism that is a single cell, hydrogen, gas that we make from water, electricity to make hydrogen from water and carbon dioxide and basically the biofermenters like big soda stream the whole cell biomass that we grow is our product it's a it's a dried powder traditional agriculture has the problem of land use moving food production from farm to factory removes that problem and the process as you've described it doesn't take up lots of water it doesn't harm the soil so Are there any real barriers to scaling this up to essentially solve food security? Not really. So for a food tech company, there are three things what you need to prove. So you need to prove that it's safe. The second is, are there nutritional benefits? Uh, How does it work technically? So does it form structure? Structure forming means that how glass of water differs from a jar of yogurt. That's texture, it's thick. So that is what you need. And the third one is, does it scale? And that's where we are now. That's why we're investing to our first factory to prove that really scales. We think of how quickly this uh, food tech transition can happen. The unfortunate fact is that it's a huge industrial operation to get these factories built. And it takes time, two years per factory. So it's a scaling problem for the industry after we've proven the initials, what we we think we've already done. I can appreciate that. Let's take that issue of the nutritional value of the product for a second what can someone consuming this expect to extract simple answer what this nutrition holds is to think of it as as a meat in powder form so it is a complete protein it does have all the essential amino acids plus it contains three things typically as one extreme a vegan diet is lacking which is iron B12, vitamin and carotenoids turning into vitamin A. So it could serve as a main bulk of protein, but also what they call fortifier. So adding these vitamins and iron to a mostly plant-based diet. It's obviously not consumed in the powder form, is it? How does it integrate with and how how do you fuse it into the food that or the texture that people are expecting when they consume food? Using some simple examples, so 
everybody understands the concept of, of wheat flour. You buy that from a supermarket, but you hardly ever consume it as such, right? So you make it to different kinds of textures like bread. So whether it's meat alternatives, it is different kinds of drink applications to shakes, to yogurts, uh, ice creams, dairy alternatives, vegan mayonnaise, and also replacing egg in some pastry, noodle, pasta, and not to forget the standard protein bars. So it's actually quite versatile in, in uh, end-use application, this ingredient. So once you satisfy the criteria of making sure the nutritional values there as you have or that the scaling will work, is the sky the limit here? What possibilities do you hope for once you get the all clear and you're able to start selling this product? Um, on top of, from a scientific perspective, disconnecting food production from agriculture, we could also think of on a food production system level, like it or not, if you look at planet Earth, what we need to achieve as a humankind is to more or less remove animal keeping from this equation because 80% of the environmental impact due to what we eat is due to the concept of what we call animal, industrial animal keeping. So we need to significantly reduce that, maybe not get rid of completely, uh, maybe rather not, uh, but significant limit and maybe set in decline the volumes what we are practicing there. So that is something we and companies like us are are to do here. Food is um, evokes strong emotions. Let's say, have you encountered ever perhaps a psychological barrier with people hearing about your work and hearing that you're producing food in a factory from essentially bacteria? There are a couple of approaches, actually, what you can um, take here. So the first is uh, uh, consumer acceptance. We've actually quite uh, done quite some studies uh, around the, the acceptance. And once people understand that there are benefits for the environment, there are nutritional benefits, actually people are quite open to new opportunities because there haven't been really new, completely new kinds of foods around, right? So it's actually intriguing to to uh think that you know i could be part of the solution rather than a problem so eating environmentally friendly food is an act for for good it makes a lot of sense why the product you've got has got a lot of protein in it a lot of fat because that's i think it's something like a third of the world's protein supply currently comes from meat and dairy which as we know and as you've mentioned is one of the most resource intensive types of agriculture so i can see why your aim has been to reduce the dependency on meat and dairy but could different bacteria or different inputs be fermented in order to produce food products with other nutritional makeups are there other possibilities in this sort of process in answering that uh, uh, we we open kind of a pandora box in the sense that there are so many opportunities through technology that almost anything is is, is possible with time what I mean is that cultivated meat uh, is, is one specific application. Uh, what we are doing is that we are cultivating microorganism. We don't modify it. So basically, what's the composition of that organism is what it is. It's the same as the composition of you and me. It is, on roughly speaking, what you can't influence that too much unless you go into genetic engineering and then 
new uh, window opens for opportunities basically to tailor the organism to produce any protein what you want. We are a non-GMO product today, but of course there are the GMO opportunities uh, in the future basically to produce proteins, fats or flavors, colors, whatever. There are a lot of companies working on that too. Passy Weinecker, who, if he gets his way, will be replacing your local butchers with a microbrewery. Chris. <laughs> and of course, it sounds a bit icky to survive on a diet of bacteria, but we're already eating lots of products of microorganisms. Every time you spread certain things like Marmite on your toast or Vegemite, you're eating single-cell protein produced by yeast and fungi, and cows are kept alive by eating a diet of bacteria. Well, that's it for this week. All good food for thought. Next time, we'll be finding out what's happening with bird flu. There are billions of birds that have died or been culled around the world now because of the wide-scale outbreak of H5N1 influenza. And now the virus, alarmingly, appears to be jumping into other wildlife species, including mammals, which brings it a step closer to us. Why is this happening? Join us next week to hear whether we're ready to combat the risk. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. He's James Titko. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>